really pleased to see so many of you here tonight, and uh, we are particularly happy and pleased because we have Professor David Andrich here today to get with us. And as um, probably many of you know, uh, he's sitting in front here, David Andrich is a visiting professor at the Oxford University Centre of Education Assessment, and he's also a chapel professor at the Graduate School of Education in University of Western Australia. He has his PhD from University of Chicago, uh, a PhD he also won a Susan Kohler Rosenberger Prize for. And many of you will know that he also spent time in 1977 in Denmark when he worked together with Roche. And uh, he's also especially known for his work in modern test theory and in particular Roche models for measurement, ranging in topics from philosophy of measurement through model exposition and interpretation to software development. And as uh, many of you know, uh, he has been a visiting professor at uh, Oxford University Centre of Educational Assessment from the time uh, Gordon Stanley was the director. And we have been really pleased to enjoy having David visiting with us uh, ever since. And he's uh, a great guy who, who contributes intellectually uh, with both seminars, supervision of students and writing with us. So we're really looking forward to conversations tackling some of the really bold and big ideas. Many of you will also know uh, Professor Joanne Beard. She is the director of, of uh, our centre. And before coming to Oxford, uh, Joanne was a professor of education and coordinator of the Centre of Assessment and Learning Studies at the University of Bristol. Joanne has also previously held the position of head of the Research at the Assessment and Qualification Alliance where she managed a research program and was responsible for the standing testing systems for public examinations. She was also a lecturer at the Institute of Education in London, and she has a first degree and doctorate in psychology. Joanne is a visiting professor at Queen's University of Belfast, and I can also tell that she is now a visiting professor at the University of Bergen in Norway, where she's an advisor of a new centre uh, setting up a research program in 10 years now, uh, something called SLATE, which I'm quite sure a lot of you will hear more about. It's funded by the Ministry of Education in Norway. And in addition, she is an editor and previous lead editor of the very famous uh, journal Assessment in Education, where we also discuss some of these ideas around assessment and learning. So I'm really pleased to hand over to you, Joanne, first, uh, to lead us in this uh, very interesting discussion about assessment and learning. Thanks very much, Therese. Um, so tonight I'm going to be talking about a project that began with this funded project from the Norwegian Research Council. It's actually the Norwegian Knowledge Centre for Education. So it had five authors, so I sort of feel I should recognise that. Uh, May, Therese, Paul Newton, Gordon Stobart and a PhD student from Norway. Anastine Utheim, is that how you pronounce that? Her name. Um, but we've been working more on the issues that arose from that project. David was actually an advisor to the project and not one of the authors initially. And uh, a few issues arose that we, we wanted to follow up. So um, we have a special issue of assessment in education which focuses on what I'm going to be talking about tonight and we've lined up some of the biggest names in the field to respond to it so I'll be really interested in running some of these ideas past you and getting some responses before um, I get to that point. Dylan William is a co-editor of that special issue with me. Um, 
David has been at the centre now for a number of years. I've been here for four years. And actually, we come from very different paradigms in assessment. So it's been really interesting over that period of time to really talk through why it is that we have different positions in the field, where do we agree and where do we not agree. And I think it's quite rare, actually, in your academic career that you get that opportunity over such a long period of time to work these things through. And I think that's partly um, what's influenced uh, this work. And I would also say, although we did talk about earlier that David might shout out rubbish at some point, it's something I say. <laughs> I'd also say that David's psychometric work is sometimes misused in the field and people put it far more strongly or in a different context than he had intended. So some of what I'm talking about is going to be really at the, the, um, the, the difference between psychometrics and assessment generally. Now, I want to talk about uh, the relationship between assessment and learning. And so to do that, I'm going to go back to some fundamentals. So bear with me. I'm going to be talking about learning theories that you're all familiar with and so on, but trying to relate it to our assessment uh, practice and theory. And really to basically try and give an overview of this field, where it's at at the moment and where we need to go to try and improve things. So in conducting this uh, state-of-the-art review on assessment and learning, we set out why it's important to look at uh, these two fields together. I think if we had been looking at assessment 30 years ago, we'd have said it was the underdog to um, pedagogy and curriculum, but it's certainly just not the case anymore. It's come really to dominate education in a large part. Now, partly this is because of broader issues in society about neoliberal hegemony about new public management. This whole idea of the knowledge economy where education is really what's going to drive the e economic prosperity of the future. And assessment data feeds into those issues very, very well. Now, as part of that, uh, there's a really nice book by um, Michael Power called The Audit Society. Um, and he talks about the kinds of target systems that we set up to audit whether professionals are doing uh, the work that they're supposed to be doing. And so data has been, from assessment, has been feeding in, and sometimes in appropriate ways, into auditing the education system at various levels. But what that has really meant for us is that the assessments themselves have come to define what is actually meant as valuable learning. And in quite a deep way, I think. So we talk about tests quite a lot. We often focus on <coughs> national um, school leaving tests, um, certainly high stakes tests, either for the learner or the teacher. And it's through these multiple and high stakes that assessment has actually come to uh, dominate learning. So through this presentation then, I want to really draw out the fact that assessment is actually an agenda setting activity for all those reasons. I'm not going to talk to um, both of the cases that we bring up in the report that we wrote. Incidentally, there's some copies um, outside if you want one. But we, we talk about two developments in the 21st century in assessment, one being international tests like PISA. It's been a very, very big development, as you'll know. And the other um, being assessment for learning, which has really been promulgated 
quite widely uh, across the planet. And we look at how, um, how learning theory has been used in, in each of these cases. But tonight I'm just going to talk very, very briefly about international chess, just to illustrate some of the issues um, that I'm raising in a somewhat more concrete manner. So what we wanted to do then is build cumulatively in what's gone before. Um, and Pellegrino's book, Knowing What Students Know, really influenced our starting point. So. Um, a, a couple of words on what we mean by theory, since I'm going to be talking to that. Um, all theory is an abstraction. Um, it's a, often built on abductive reasoning, such as, and this is for Therese, since she's Norwegian, uh, that, I know he's Swedish, Valander has a theory that Schwarzen killed Inga, so, you know, a sort of um, abstraction. And it's, it's, we sometimes use the phrase, it's just a theory to distinguish it from practice and from empirical data. Theories can be normative um, about how things should be and they can be explanatory. So they can be descriptive, they might be causal, they might be predictive and importantly, in some of what I'm going to be talking to, they might be formalised either in logic or in mathematics. So I'm essentially going to be proposing an approach that seeks better explanatory theory for assessment um, itself, but certainly its relationship with learning, and that we no need a better normative theory to guide practice. And I'm going to be saying basically uh, that there's a long way to go from where we are now. Okay, so I'm going to be distinguishing between different kinds of theory. Um, I'm really talking in a scientific paradigm as well, so people might disagree uh, when I'm talking about theory, um, but I'm going to be talking to substantive theory, learning theories, and a little bit about um, test theory, including psychometrics. Okay, so you can find that report on our website, um, or we can, if you get in touch with me, we can give you a paper copy. So this um, first section um, of the presentation is going to focus on um, the work that David and I have been doing and later I'll talk a little bit about the work that uh, Therese has contributed to this. So to start then I just want to look at what have been, what's been written about the relationship between assessment and learning. How have people been making these links between theory um, in each of these um, areas? So very few people have actually had anything to say about this in a, in a broad way. The people that I would mention who have are Mary James at Cambridge, um, Jeanette Elwood, they separately tried to look at if we take the broad classes of learning theory, how do they relate to assessment practice? Um, and there's another, there's another woman in the States who's been doing this. So um, behaviourist theories then, you could uh, say 100 years ago, they were psychology's attempt to become scientific. Uh, we didn't want to focus on mental events because they were just epiphenomena. So we really looked at what was uh, observed and could be um, objective about. So that learning then was demonstrated in people's behaviour. We're interested in mental processes. Uh, the sorts of things we were interested in, you could study in animals as well as humans. 
And of course, in large part, learning was seen as a reaction to the environment, to the stimulus, either before or after um, a behaviour um, in the target. So Mary James says about this that in terms of assessment, because we're in a sort of scientific paradigm here, um, what we then tried to do is have controlled environments in which you could measure people's memories for facts. Um, in this paradigm as well, we compared their performance with criteria or norms, things that we could easily objectify, and that you were interested in a global score um, for their um, abilities. So you can see then that really what she's getting at is she talks about a first generation of assessments. And these look like exam conditions, essentially. So what she's saying is that um, you only test individuals, you have them under controlled conditions, and it's very much like a sort of an experimental um, setup where you can observe their behaviour uh, for produced facts. Okay, then. We then begin to get interested in uh, thought. Seems bizarre looking back, obviously, that um, it was ever considered that you didn't have to think about how people um, construed the world and their mental events um, when you were thinking about learning, but it was the case. So here we have a shift in no longer we're just interested in behaviour, but in learning that we see is occurring in the brain. Um, it's not just memory for facts that we're interested in, when we have this shift in about the 1960s, cognition and certainly metacognition, so the higher order thinking skills and so on, Bloom's work then become more important. Um, we're interested in how people build mental models of the world and how they integrate new in information with what they already know with the, the previous knowledge they have and the models they have of the world. And we notice that there seems to be a continuum from novice to experts, and we start to map what happens along the way, what kinds of misconceptions people have, and so on. How do you make that journey from a novice learner to being an expert learner? So um, this influences then, she says, how we assess. We begin to be more interested in higher order thinking skills such as synthesis, evaluation, problem solving and so on. So these then become um, more designed to tasks or into the rubrics that we use. She argues that we use more extended tasks when you're interested in higher order thinking skills because you can elicit them uh, more easily. And that our rubrics as well are built upon this idea of the novice to expert continuum. So here you could say that we would have more um, essay type activities and so on and also uh, partial credit and things like that so that in a complicated maths problem if a student gets part way you give them a score uh, not just for getting to the right solution but actually for their thinking along the way. So we could also talk about sociocultural theory. Um, where here we don't see uh, learning is happening in the brain. It's actually something that happens between people. I don't learn unless a community of experts agrees that I've learned. So it's actually situation and context dependent as well, and this is embraced in this approach. One of the things we know from loads of studies in uh, cognitive psychology is it's really, really difficult to transfer your training from one context to another. That is a very difficult thing for uh, novices to do. So 
this then matters if you're actually designing assessments. What you might want to do is have authentic tasks and so on. In this approach as well, we entirely accept that uh, learning is value-laden, so it's no longer this objective scientific model entirely. You're actually having to tackle the fact that um, it's, it's embedded in social and political contexts. So, in this approach then, uh, we start to see things like um, groups being assessed, peer assessment and so on, and far more engagement with the criteria, because obviously that's important, actually negotiating what the criteria for assessment are under a model like this is being aware of it, being able to self-reflect on it and so on, is clearly far more in tune with um, theories like this. So, portfolios, um, assessment for learning, these types of approaches, formative assessment, would be more aligned with this sort of theory. <coughs> now obviously, I've kind of been talking about this as though there's some sort of chronological order here, and that's just clearly not the case. Socio-constructivist approaches to learning have coexisted with behaviourist approaches even, they've been there all along. And actually the links between um, these broad theories of learning and assessment practice are just not clear at all. We have had essays going on for centuries and in fairness Mary James does recognise um, both of these issues. So formats of assessment or assessment practices can actually um, coexist with different beliefs about how uh, learning occurs. So, so I'm starting from a place where it's actually quite difficult then to look at this um, relationship between broad assessment, broad learning theories and how they've affected assessment practices. So very on in this uh, thinking then, we began to wonder, well, just how much has learning theory actually influenced assessment practice and vice versa? Where can you trace this? Or actually have these fields been growing apart totally separately, not um, well enough connected? And if you think about the volume of assessment that takes place, even if it was just talking about secondary schools just for a moment, the volume of assessments that take place in secondary schools all around the planet every year, even if we just talk about large-scale assessments, absolutely enormous. So you would think, wouldn't you, that some of that had actually been used systematically to influence how we view learning um, and also that there was a feedback from our theorisation of that to our assessment practice. Okay. Yeah, so, just a word on this. Um, occasionally you have people claim that certain assessment practices are totally incompatible with one of those models. That might be true, actually, for sociocultural <coughs> theory. But um, one of the obvious examples of this is that there's, uh, it's said a lot that multiple choice tests don't test higher order thinking skills. Well, I don't actually think that is totally true. And you see it in medics, um, have exams with multiple choice tests very frequently. And they seem to be testing higher order thinking skills. Well, they are. They're testing higher order thinking skills. You also see it in IQ tests and so on. So it's just not uh, straightforward at all. And also, when you try and use these learning theories to motivate practice, as any teacher will have discovered, 
hear him talking about assessment specifically, it's actually quite difficult to know what it is they're telling you to do. It's not a straightforward connection between um, theory and practice. Here is a letter that I discovered from B.F. Skinner, so very famous behaviourist, um, to Science uh, magazine in 1989. So he basically says that good instruction demands two things, um, immediate feedback and telling people what they have to do next. Now that actually looks like assessment for learning. This is very much like the Black and William paper, uh, the black box. So he doesn't quite say, um, tell them what to do uh, when, when they were right, but he's getting very, very close there to what Black and William were saying about assessment for learning. That's a behaviourist writing and Black and William have really situated their work in socio-cultural theory. So it's actually really, really difficult to distinguish exactly what these connections are. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about psychometrics in a minute. So I want to just distinguish between assessment, which I've, I think I've probably used that word a lot, and psychometrics. Um, in the literature on assessment, psychometrics definitely dominates the field and it's, also, it's often seen as um, more rigorous, um, partly because it relies on mathematical models and there are very well formulated models behind them. It's also, uh, lots, there's lots published on different indices that you can generate using um, psychometric approaches and it has a long scientific, if you like, tradition related to IQ testing, personality and so on. There's a really nice book that I like, uh, edited by Martin Lawn, called Crossing the Atlantic. And he um, identified a project that occurred between the wars, where um, I think it was Carnegie Mellon, certainly one of these um, big um, donors, tried to fund a project to bring together the best scientists across the world to talk about the development of the science of assessment. So of course they're all blokes. <laughs> Um, but there's a nice picture of them on the front of the, the cover of the book. And what happens then when you look country by country is that the project totally fell apart because actually how they viewed learning and therefore how they viewed what counted as good science and assessment was very, very different in Scandinavia, Germany, Scotland, <laughs> England and in the States. So they really had a good go at this. They had several meetings, but they couldn't um, move it forward. So it's clear there that there are some underlying fundamental differences then between this field of psychometrics that the Americans were trying to pursue. It's not only Americans who use psychometrics, but at that, in that project. And what we see as assessment of um, learning. In the early, late 70s, early 1980s, um, here in the UK, we had what's come to be known in our field, which might not be broadly known, as the RASH Wars. Um, RASH is a statistical psychometric technique, um, which David is very famous for using. And it was very much criticised because the assessment of performance unit here in the UK was trying to use it to measure performance over time in schools. Now, Harvey Goldstein was one of the main protagonists behind this. And I can't tell you just how embittered people still are 
about that debate. Now, he attacked it te on technical grounds, but I think what he was actually doing was politically motivated because he didn't want multiple choice testing in schools because it has a backwash effect on the education system that he thought would be detrimental. And I agree. But having said that, he himself would now say, you don't have to um, have multiple choice tests to use psychometric models now. There's been loads of advances in these models, so it doesn't necessarily imply that. So, on the back of these sorts of debates, um, Desmond Nuttall, Caroline Gipps, Patricia Broadfoot, Paul Black and Wynne Harlan all argued for a more educationally based approach to um, assessment that was more learner-centred. So did things like um, take into account the best performance that a student had, embrace the fact that people um, can improve, that you're not actually just measuring some kind of underlying ability and so on. So you can see that culturally this is actually quite different from the psychometric model, which we'll go on to talk about, which assumes a kind of ability that um, may be uh, part of the internal makeup of a person. So in a 2013 paper with Paul Black, um, we just tried to map out some of the issues that using psychometric, so to really sort of go back to um, Harvey Goldstein's work and take it forward a little bit more and just map out what some of the issues are for practice if you're using a psychometric model and why people might not actually want to adopt that. And it might seem strange, but that hadn't been written, um, hadn't been published. So we say things like, um, uh, in a psychometric model, you're assessing an underlying construct. What you want to do is construct item banks so that you can calibrate the difficulty of items across different assessment settings. Um, and you want to keep your items secure so that uh, exposing them to learners doesn't change the difficulty of those items so that you can get a grip on the standards of your tests. You want a single dimension so that these things hang well together. I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Um, and you, you, want to have, you want to be able to pre-test some of your items so that you can really get a, a handle on um, the level of difficulty. So if you take that to um, a national examination situation, for example, that's just not always going to suit. So you end up with tensions there and you have to make um, practice-based decisions and prioritise whether you really want the implications of these psychometric models or not. So for example, you don't want a construct really that's never going to change. And this causes serious problems for some of those item banking approaches. Curriculum does advance, there are debates around these things and it does change. It's very difficult too nowadays to go back to um, concealing your criteria, so the exams themselves, uh, the scoring rubrics and so on are largely public in most countries um, for tests. Um, you might also want to put some things together in a test for educationally sound reasons that might not correlate that well, so you might end up with a multidimensional test. Additionally, pre-testing isn't always feasible. I, I mean, I could go on and on about all the sort of practical implications here, but pre-testing isn't always feasible. If you think about, let's just take GCSE exams, 
um, taken by 16-year-olds in the UK. There are hundreds of them every single week. That's the exam, you know, millions of students' um, enters, entries, but there are actually hundreds of exams every year. So the cost of pre-testing would be absolutely enormous. So doesn't really fit very well with some of the things that we're actually trying to do. I'm now going to sort of turn to um, the psychometrics literature. So I've, I've just talked about some of these broad then uh, views about assessment and I want to come back to the psychometrics literature. Now one of the reasons it's been really helpful to work as a team like this with our different positions is that in large part um, those authors, Nuttall, Gibbs, Broadfoot, Black and Harlan, they're not, their uh, positions are often not even uh, engaged with by psychometricians. So we have sort of different paradigms and people not entirely respecting um, the approach that the other is taking. Um, the caric caricature of psychometricians is that just playing with numbers. And the caricature of the other side is that they don't understand numbers. <laughs> so you can see uh, the difficulty here. So if I go back to um, the sort of trying to establish a scientific basis, and now I'm talking about assessment rather than psychology more broadly. In the 1940s, there was a, a Ferguson committee um, which really got into a big dust-up about whether psychological assessments were quantitative. I'm talking about psychological assessments here because psychometrics comes out of that tradition and it's actually um, been pulled through to education in part because a lot of the psychology that it was built on was, was about IQ. So this committee then had a big fight about whether psychological constructs were actually quantitative at all. And this led to, you'll be familiar with um, Stephen's uh, publication where he talks about there being different forms of measurement. So when I first came across this, I couldn't understand as, a, as an undergraduate, where on earth does this come from? Why is this important? You know, but it was really important to trying to establish the idea that um, there wasn't just one way of measuring. So he said then, you can have categories, you can have ordinal data, interval or ratio. So that's the move that he made. And people are still arguing to this day about whether all of those forms count as measurement. So they were also arguing way back then that what we measure might, in psychology might actually be as much a product of the instrument as it is of the people coming along taking the test. So I said that, and I might be a bit derisive later as well, about the extent to which mathematical formalizations are theory. But I should also just say a word about the fact that they have actually contributed a lot to this field. So in a brilliant 1964, I think it was, paper, um, Lewis and Chuki showed uh, they called it additive conjoint measurement and they basically showed that um, ratio scales could be produced from ordinal variables given a few assumptions. 
sadly, those assumptions, I mean, that would have been fantastic problem solved, you know, with ordinal skills, we can, we can create measurement skills. But sadly, those assumptions are not met by the data, the empirical data that we encounter. So, for example, transitivity. If one item is difficult in the test today, when I use it with a different population, that might not be the most difficult item and so on. Um, so, just to sort of bring it back more to the present day, Joel Michelle from the University of Sydney, he basically says that whatever it is we're doing in psychology isn't measurement at all in the scientific sense, that these other ways we have of thinking about things as categorical, ordinal and so on, they're actually um, not, not a measurement, so we need a different way of thinking about this. So then we move on where we have classical test theory, um, which is basically that your um, observed score is a product of true score plus error, and then a lot of theorisation on top of that. But it was based upon centuries of statistical work, the big um, advances made in the 60s again. But this essentially suffers from all the same problems as Luce and Chukies. And then we move forward to um, what's known in the field as modern test theory, really. Latent trait theory is another way of talking about it. Uh, I would say that they are developed from factor analysis, which was produced by Spearman um, in 1904. But uh, David uses George Rash's approach, and that's uh, more probabilistic. It's a, a different way of um, coming to the models. There are different formulations of this, which ha might have different uh, parameters. And also, a big criticism of these models is, although we're assuming that there's an underlying latent trait there that is a, a feature of the individual, it needn't necessarily be that there's just one unidimensional trait. There are models that can cope with multiple dimensions. Um, OK, but even this doesn't deal with, although it produces a scale from the data that you put into this, doesn't deal with Joe Michelle's criticisms about whether any of this is uh, quantifiable in the first place. So although here I've actually been talking about psychometrics, these sorts of issues that I'm raising about whether uh, the, the attributes are quantifiable at all, they're not even just a problem for psychometrics, they're actually a problem for the assessment field more broadly. So you can see then uh, that we've, we've got a few problems yet to solve. So what, well what does it even mean then to assess students' attainment? Well, we often talk about this in the psychometrics field as an underlying construct. And Cronbach and Mill say that this is a postulated attribute of people that's assumed to be reflected in test performance. Um, we then use these uh, constructs to create grading and scoring schemes um, and we largely are assuming unidimensionality in our test, despite what I said earlier. Now how we're doing that in practice is looking at whether the items in a test, whether the different questions actually correlate. So I call it assessment by association in the paper that we're writing. That is the test about whether there's actually an underlying um, dimension. 
if we have more than one dimension, we start to get into problems about how we actually um, combine these different things into a single score. We also have to encounter issues about invariance, whether a score um, means the same thing across different uh, groups of people um, and across different tests. So a good example of this would be Yasmin Elmazri's work on PISA data, where she looked at whether language actually affects, so tra test translation, whether that affects the interpretation of the test score. There are many examples of this. We want to use um, scores from different schools and so on, so do you get invariants? Can you interpret them in the same way uh, if different examiners mark them and so on and so on. So there are lots of issues here about what those constructs mean and how we can use the data. So, um, in response to Joe Michel, well, I should say first that he actually identifies the condition for quantification as the um, requirements for real numbers. That's effectively what he does in his papers. And there have been several special issues around this issue in the, in the literature. So Michael Caine says, yeah, that's all brilliant. I really like these um, assumptions that you think assessment uh, really ought to be able to embrace. Unfortunately, our educational assessments just don't meet any of those uh, criteria in practice. So physics then, um, many of the psychometricians actually come from the world of physics. And Stephen Jay Gould says that uh, people working in that field suffer from physics envy. Um, I could list them all. David is a physicist. <laughs> he hasn't got any envy about this. But um, basically what David and others have said is that physics has actually been held up as a very idealistic example here of measurement. That physical measurements themselves took a long time to develop. Education is actually quite a young science, if you want to call it that. Um, but actually, we need to look at the fact that theories and apparatus took a very, very long time before you could, for example, measure temperature. This didn't just happen um, overnight. There were clear breakthroughs, but it took a, a long time. Um, so the example David uh, was talking about when I was working with him in Australia was the alcohol content of wine. If you want to measure that, you first of all need to know it's important and how you measure the sugar content and so on and how that affects the later alcohol content. So he's got all these um, antique devices that he has in his uh, vineyard that he uses to show how this uh, measurement was developed over time. But the other thing is that actually measurements in the physical sciences are inconsistent just in the same way that we, we fret about the inconsistency of our measurements in um, education. But it's clear from all of that, if we're actually wondering if any of it's quantifiable, and so then the extent to which it's actually meaningful, that we probably need um, some externality to our measures. If we're worrying that the measures we're getting are just a product of the tests that we are presenting to people, then we need some other way of getting a handle on these things to um, substantiate that there's a real phenomenon. So how do we go about in practice, actually creating the constructs that motivate the design of our tests. Well, there are four main ways in which we do this. We look at theory, 
Um, we look at the data that we've seen from um, students taking tests, so we can then say some of these items seem to be harder than others. Um, they're probably going to be ones that we give higher scores to and so on, higher grades for students who can um, tackle these items. In large part though, what we do in educational assessment is sit down a group of subject matter experts and ask them what they think. Now to some part, uh, to some extent informally, that's going to be theory based and it's going to be um, empirically driven. But that's the main method that we use. Now what I would say about educational assessment that's quite different I think from psychological assessment is that it's also sometimes policy driven. So the Secretary of State for Education here in the UK is going to want questions on Shakespeare in our education system and um, actually now has quite firm views about what should be in mathematics papers and so on. But there's a huge agenda setting activity behind this that means politics in many countries, and it's very obvious when you look at other countries, I think, um, are going to be it's going to be really involved in national testing. So Pamela Moss basically says that um, these, uh, these methods and theories are actually really influencing how people come to see themselves. It's actually shaping individuals' identity and it's uh, promoting some groups um, over others. So you have to question um, what fairness means under these um, rules of engagement. And Andy Moll says it's not clear at all the extent to which um, the attributes are actually can, are separable from, still he's saying this, are separable from the measurement instruments that we use. So in terms of um, philosophical position, the field is still um, essentially modernist that um, most... Uh, practitioners in the field, Denny Borspoon argues, in fact he actually, Denny Borspoon actually argues that it doesn't make sense to be a psychometrician unless you believe that these attributes exist in individuals and are out there waiting to be discovered and given a quantity. Um, but our position is more in common with, I think it's Kane, which is um, that we have more of a neo-pragmatic, postmodern approach to this. So I don't know the extent to which these attributes uh, exist um, and are independent of my measures. However, it's not the case that I'm uh, going to give up there. I'm actually interested in triangulating and finding out the extent to which uh, there are other um, ways of getting at the phenomenon of interest. So, in one of his papers, I think it's Attack of the Psychometricians, um, Denny Borsboom writes that he is not a walking set of constructs. So he basically is saying there that he doesn't have these attributes as something that is contained within himself. So in the paper that we're writing currently, um, we say that he is. In fact... <laughs> Um, he has a walking set of constructs. He's, he's the sorts of constructs that we can project upon him. And in fact, we all are. And this is part of the agenda setting and shaping process. So as a sort of social realism about um, assessment and how it influences how we see people. Okay, so... Um, 
I'm really arguing here that all of that stuff I've been talking about in terms of assessment theory is not been overly influenced at all by um, the learning theories that I was talking about earlier. So they really are fields apart when you look at what's been the work that's been going on in these two fields. And one of the criticisms of assessment and psychometrics is that some people argue that there's actually no theory to it at all. So they object to the idea of um, modern test theory or classical <coughs> test theory, that they're just mathematical models and they certainly don't constitute educational or psychological theories. And then um, there's been a lot of finger pointing with some people saying uh, one group are to blame and some people the other. So McGrath says um, that psychometricians have caused the problem and are really interested in playing with numbers and not looking at the substantive issues. Denny Borsboom says instead that it's actually psychologists, who, he works in the field of psychology I should say, he says it's psychologists who are to blame that they haven't produced good enough um, theoretical substantive models that would motivate testing, good testing. And um, David Andrich argues that actually what you need is both these sets of skills, that you need good assessment people and good educationalists um, to be working together to produce better tests. But certainly, I think we agree with um, uh, this quotation at the bottom, that models of learning that underpin test design are either not even referred to in puberty, infancy, or even at the fetal stage. And this raises the big question then about whether psychometrics, or actually more broadly assessment, have helped us to understand learning at all. So, so much so that um, in the 2013 paper that I mentioned earlier, Paul Black and I basically say that sometimes, for all the reasons I outlined earlier, um, it looks like an answer to somebody else's problem. Um, these measurement systems have got their own internal logic. The measurement approach itself doesn't actually tell you about the phenomenon of interest. The numbers don't tell you about what they measure. Um, and also, in all of this theorising about um, assessment and psychometrics, we don't grapple with the fact that there's a big agenda-setting intentional element, which we see through the, the involvement of politics in particular, to um, setting out what the construct actually is that we're going to prioritise as valuable learning. So, how could assessment inform learning theory and vice versa? Well, um, obviously it generates a lot of data and if we were more systematic about this we could really be using it to actually try and grapple with better um, what, what it tells us about how and what students have learned and the extent to which they've learned. Now, I'm being uh, very strong in my position and I think what I'm saying is it's that systematic element that's missing because there is craft knowledge, obviously, that certain individuals are gaining from their um, involvement in practice using assessments. So examiners, individual examiners, will have seen lots of data that will have informed them personally about which concepts seem to be more difficult for students over a number of tests. And the same must also be true of teachers. So it's the systematic element that I'm really arguing is absent. 
Some people are actually trying to do this. Mark Wilson would be an example. But there's a whole range of things, because we've had these two fields apart, there's a whole range of things about, and also I think actually because we've approached it largely from a psychological um, basis, there's a whole loads of things about education that we haven't been able to grapple with very well, such as the fact that curriculum exposure actually um, influence and other population characteristics <coughs> cause problems with invariance. So, for example, um, if I introduce a new aspect of the curriculum on mathematics this year, it's probably going to be pretty badly done in the first year, but once teachers see that that's on the test, then the next year uh, the students will be exposed to that curriculum and they'll get better at it. So you can see then that this causes all kinds of problems when you're actually trying to measure standards over time and we don't actually have a good way of um, grappling with this frame of reference problem at all. We also really struggle, there's a special issue of assessment and education that came out this year um, and I think it just illustrates um, a lot of the problems for us in actually trying to grapple with socio-cultural learning theory um, and fitting it with assessment practices. In particular, um, in assessment, standardisation has been, it's the same test for everyone. Um, that's been seen as a route to fairness. Well, clearly, there's all sorts of injustices attached to that. But in any case, socio-cultural theory would just disregard that as a, as a fairness issue, as a, fair, a way of tackling fairness. So, I just want to take some of this stuff and talk about it in terms of, very briefly, in terms of um, an example, just to illustrate uh, the issues. This is a section of the paper that Therese and I have been working on. So, what we also say is that cognitive learning theory is really where we are in assessment. That's what people are using, uh, where, where they do use theory, learning theory, that's what they're basing test design on. And so in these international tests, there's some evidence that cognitive models of learning have been used to generate the test content, the, um, the scoring rubrics and so on. And these international tests, they do assume a single underlying variable construct that is uh, measured um, as an ability within people, actually as a literacy in PISA. They assume that this is a realist position, this is something that exists independently of the test and that you can go out and measure this. And invariance, the idea that the score is going to be of the same meaning across different contexts and across different groups and so on, is actually crucially important um, for in international tests because you can't really, they're useless unless you can actually interpret those scores in the same way across different contexts. So, why are we even talking about international tests? How are they going to influence learning at all? What's the re relationship here? Okay, you can see it in one direction, but perhaps we shouldn't really be thinking about them in, um, in the other way. Well, we argue that actually even international tests, which are seen as low stakes for the people who are taking them and low stakes for the teachers who are administering them, still influence the learning of students because they influence, in a very broad way, what counts as valuable learning. They influence policy um, all around the world. There's lots of examples of this. 
And then through that and through how that influences test design, especially in national systems, um, it influences how students prepare for tests and directly influences students' learning in itself. Um, I would have said in the UK, um, until really quite recently, that international tests hadn't affected our own culture of assessment, that we have quite a strong culture of GCSEs at age 16 and A-levels at age 18, and if you look at the, the style and content of those exams, not only has it not actually changed that much over time, but it doesn't really, it hasn't really been influenced much um, by international tests. In fact, Jeannie Ryan, one of our PhD students, is looking at this in, in a couple of countries, whether you can um, show what the relationships are. So looking for some examples of items to illustrate my point, I came across a GCSE science item that looked just like a PISA item. So there obviously are influences even here. And when I reflected on that, it wasn't actually that I don't think PISA had directly influenced our practice here in the UK on national testing. I think what happened was a broader argument about scientific literacy that influenced the national testing here and PISA design. So there are different routes, I think, to um, how it affects learning. But equally, it is now the law in this country that um, the regulator has to make sure that the standards of the exams are internationally benchmarked. So by implication then, people need a, a way of approaching this in practice. And what the exam boards have been doing is comparing the standards of their tests with those in PISA. So you can see that this is going to have a much more um, direct impact. Okay, now why does any of this matter? Does it matter that assessment is, um, if you're only assessing outcomes, you don't actually have to assess process necessarily, some might argue. So do you actually have to have a better relationship between um, assessment and learning uh, in the literature? Well, actually, I think you do. I think um, because assessment is hugely impacting on what and how students learn, as well as um, a political agenda setting activity, I think we really need to move towards a, a more systematic way of gain using that data so that you can bring these two fields together. I think that the assessment numbers have ended up having a very large life of their own in all sorts of um, audit systems. And actually it means that people who are interpreting the data have less and less interest in the content of the tests and in the learning that they're actually provoking. So I think this is hugely problematical. So it's essentially part of my argument then about bringing assessment and learning theories closer together theoretically and in practice is about um, getting it real in effect and looking really at what is it that students are learning here, how are they learning and how can we design assessments that actually promote the educational project rather than um, disrupt it. So um, these statistical models in test theory I'm not disregarding them at all. They can be incredibly useful, especially for um, looking at problems uh, with your test design. But they vary in utility depending on the context and the sort of culture and what you're actually trying to achieve through your assessment design. 
Um, certainly currently, cognitive learning theories are the basis of um, testing where theory is used at all. And I think what is what has been documented over and over again is that these tests with their washback on um, students' learning have actually been very detrimental in lots of instances. And unless we actually get a grip on this and change how we're approaching this, I think that can um, only get worse. Okay, thank you. <laughs>